on the job with Fred Sleet and Sally Rugg. On the job, the podcast all about making your working life better. My name is Francis Leach. And my name is Sally Rugg. Hey, Sal. I would say, how are you doing? Have you had a good week? But you couldn't have had a good week because the world has just turned to five piles of shit around us. Gee, it's been weird and hard, hasn't it? It has been, but not remotely for me. And I say that because the hardship that I have personally felt um, is sort of like, you know, watching all these horrific events unfold on the television or via the radio or on my computer screen. And even though that is like quite a destabilising experience, it's just like nothing compared to actually living through some of the horrors we're seeing from overseas and, and particularly here in Australia with the devastating floods all up the East Coast. Through events like this, like there's so much tragedy and devastation, but I think something that always shines through is the ability of communities to organise with each other and organise support and access to services and, and stuff like that. And so it's also been very inspiring watching that all come together. And I, I'm interested in your thoughts on this, Francis. My, my sense is that communities are getting better and better at organising themselves to support each other, particularly through the pandemic, right? And so the the way that fundraising has sprung into action and all sorts of like digital coordination through communities affected by the floods has been quite remarkable. It really has. That self-activation and self-reliance and resilience is something which I mean, it might even surprise some people that they've got the capacity to do it, but it has become something that we've had to do and we've become really good at. Uh, that doesn't mean that we need to let governments off the hook, you know, particularly, say, in the Australian context, to actually do their job when it comes to supporting communities or taking preventative actions to make sure that in the event of flood, like we've had in southeast Queensland and New South Wales and in places like Lismore, that flood prevention uh, measures weren't taken or the money that was used to set aside to to provide that sort of protection wasn't used. That's a separate issue. But, yeah, you can take great heart that people are looking out for each other. The Mud Army in Brisbane, the people that just spontaneously come out to clean up for other people knowing that it's only for the grace of God that it could be them in that circumstance shows that despite what some say, that we are just a collection of individuals and, and not a society, that that's a lie, that, that we fundamentally do and are at our best when we act collectively for each other and with each other. Yeah, so huge love and respect to everybody who has organised online, particularly those who've organised fundraisers, except for... Minister Peter Dutton, who does not get my love and respect in this regard, or many regards, who, I don't know if you saw this, Francis, a couple of days ago, Peter Dutton, a minister, a long-term minister in the sitting federal government of the country, started a GoFundMe page, like an, a digital fundraising page for like a very specific area in his own electorate and shared it on social media thinking that like that was a cool and good idea and so obviously i lost my mind in a proportionate way and the you know the areas online where this social this um fundraiser was shared so predominantly on twitter but uh, across facebook as well people were outraged to see this 
because this is a minister who has millions upon millions of taxpayer money at his fingertips to, um, you know, support flood-affected communities and also, as you mentioned before, like take steps to prevent this sort of catastrophic weather event from becoming more frequent and severe going into the future. And he's launching a GoFundMe page. If it wasn't so serious, it would be very funny. And do you know what? I think it also was a teeny tiny bit funny. It was funny. It was so absurd and so darkly humorous that you. It felt like it was like a, an Ianucci, the thick of its style uh, storyline from one of those magnificent TV shows. Anyway, what does he think his job is? What like what does he think he's in government to do? Who does he think, like whose money does he think he's working with every day? when he, you know, lines it up in colour-coded spreadsheets. I just honestly, Pete. Get a grip. Anyway. Hey, <laughs> today we are going to talk with someone who we really like and admire. His name is Greg Jericho. He writes uh, economics for The Guardian. He's now working at a new gig at the Australia Institute at the uh, Centre for Future Work. We'll ask him about that as well. We're going to talk to him about inflation because it's a thing again. It's sort of like, you know, the retro 70s thing that's come back and a lot of Younger people are going, inflation, what the hell is that? Um, so we need to explain it because we know, Sally, that on the upcoming election, the government's going to make a whole hullabaloo about uh, labour and workers being responsible for pushing up prices and inflation and you are not entitled to a pay rise. Uh-uh, uh-uh, no way. So we need to find out a way to discuss how that's a load of crap. It is a load of crap. You know, beside any point, I think we should all be regularly asking for a pay rise (laughs) because what's the worst that can happen? The answer will be no, and then you just ask again next week. No problem. (laughs) (laughs) Let's catch up with Greg Jericho here on The Job. On The Job, the podcast, all about making your working life better. Now, Sally, I do like me some grogonomics every now and then, and it's got nothing to do with getting on the bottle uh, and drinking a Cascade Knee um, uh, Bogues down here in Tasmania. It's talking to Greg Jericho, Sally. Yeah, I well, I like drinking a beer and listening to Greg Jericho. Unfortunately, it's a little bit early in the day. It's before 2 p.m., so it's not polite to do that. Um, really? But, uh, Isn't it just in these days? These difficult times. That's very disciplined of you. Oh, I know. I'm a I'm a true hero, um, but I do love talking to Greg Jericho, and I'm so happy that he's come to join us today on the job. Hey, Greg. How are you going? Very good, Francis. Sally, great to be here. I've always loved the grogonomics handle, but you've got. To, you, I've never have asked you the uh, the antecedents of this. How how it came to be? Well, it it all came from um, my blog that I did back in the day, which was Grog's Gamut, which I picked out a title that I used back when I was uh, in university. I was writing for the the college newspaper or internal newspaper, and I I wrote a little column that I decided to call Grog's Gamut because back then my nickname was Grog, and it's still what everyone at uh, Guardian still calls me now (laughs) is Grog. And so basically, yeah, it was a bit of a portmanteau of Grog and economics to become Grogonomics. And it's now going on eight years or so, I think, we've been doing gardening in Australia. So, um, yeah. (laughs) Great branding, Sally, great branding. I mean, it's always wonderful when Lenore Taylor just always says, how you going, Grogs? It just always feels quite weird, but it's it's also wonderful. Well, we've got you on the pod today because we want to talk about something really, I would say really 
easy to understand, definitely like quite sexy, if anything, just sort of like dynamic, interesting, fabulous, and that is inflation. And I wanted, Grog, for you to maybe start us off by giving us like a really basic sense of like what is inflation? Well, basically inflation is, as you're right, it, it is just things getting more expensive over time. It is it is um, a natural thing in the economy. Um, there's always inflation around. Very, very rarely do prices on the whole go down and we have what's called um, disinflation. Um, and that's never a good thing at all because it basically means no one's really uh, wanting to buy anything and so everyone is uh, dropping their prices just to try and get people to buy things and when that's happening generally you're also having a recession so um, while people might complain about prices going up it actually is good for the economy if if prices are going up a little bit so inflation as we know it is what we're referring to is a thing called the consumer price index which kind of gives it away in the name. It's the price of things that we consume. So it's what households consume, not not so much businesses, although there are other measures for businesses. So what happens is the Bureau of Statistics, they use the census data and a few other surveys and try and work out what do Australian households on average spend their money on. And they put them all together in lots of groups. You know, there'll be one group of food, um, there's a group of alcohol, uh, furniture, clothing, travel, you know, housing. And so that will include not just rent and house prices, but also electricity and utilities and so forth. And they weight all of those items. So it's not a case of every item is given the same weight because we don't spend as much money on, say, bread as we do on petrol each week. And so they, they try and sort of work out what proportion do we spend on on each item. They weight them and then it's a case of what the Bureau does is actually go out and ask uh, businesses, what are you charging for bread today? What are you charging for cereal or for petrol? They also... Um, scrape data off of off of um, retail shop websites so that they can really get a sense of, of what's actually going on. And they put all those prices together, do a bit of maths and work out how much on the whole prices are going up or down. So when, uh, for example, at the moment we're saying that inflation grew by 3.5%, that essentially is saying that for that bundle of goods that an average Australian household spends their money on has gone up 3.5% compared to this time last year. It, it sounds wonderful, but the problem is, as you know, whenever you do an average of anything, you actually end up with something that doesn't exist in, in real life. So, for example, this bundle of goods that we're apparently the average household is spending their money on, uh, you'll have a household that's spending a certain amount of money on rent, but also a certain amount of money buying a new a new house. Everyone apparently spends a certain percentage of, of money on smoking each week. Um, and so it's about, um, from memory, about 4% or something like that goes towards smoking, which of course is far too much if you don't smoke and far too little if you actually do smoke, but it's an average. And so that's what it all is. It's a fairly contentious thing as well, because Whenever I write about inflation, everyone really gets quite angry about it. And I think it is because of this whole averaging thing. Everyone feels like 
their own spend is going up more than um, you know what the the bureau stats says. It's a fascinating element in the economy now because for so long we never talked about it. I mean, for 20-odd yeah. years, inflation was not a thing. When I was a kid, and maybe you were Greek in the 70s, it was the thing. It was, uh, yeah. it was something that was seen as this uh, disease within the economy and uh, it was causing all sorts of problems. Then it disappeared. So what happened in the meantime and why the hell is it back? You're right. In the 70s, well, let's go back a little bit before that. Uh, in the 50s and Late 50s and most of the way through the 60s, there really wasn't much inflation. Everyone's thinking, oh, this is wonderful, golden years, everything's going great. Then in the 70s, inflation came out and really played havoc with the world. Mostly it came from the OPEC oil crisis when the OPEC nations decided to really clamp down on how much oil they were spending due to sort of global political things. That massively increased the price of petrol, which back then everyone drove very um, gas-guzzling cars and so that really increased the prices of everything. That set off a real chain of events that saw inflation start growing at above 10% at times, you know, prices going up by more than 10% in a year. That happened through the 80s as well, a bit of a boom and bust during the Hawke years. And then came the recession that we had to have. And the main reason that recession occurred was because the government and the Reserve Bank tried to actually kill inflation. It was almost a sense of, and it was a a bit of a, um, you could say a kind of neoliberal economic theory, certainly it happened in America in the early 80s under Reagan, was this sense of what we have to do to get strong economies is to kill off inflation and get it down to around 2% to 3%. So what happened is people will recall back in the 90s, the Reserve Bank jacked up interest rates up to 17%, killed the economy, literally, you know, just stone dead, no one could afford to borrow. No one was, um, no businesses were able to take out loans, you know, and so they were shutting down. Killed the economy. And what that meant was it took all of that demand out of the economy as well. People weren't going out and buying stuff. And so as a result, shops couldn't keep raising prices because there was no one who could afford them. And so inflation dropped dramatically down to around 2%. And then what happened from then on, the Reserve Bank targeted inflation rather than just thinking a bit more broadly about general economy things. They specifically target inflation through raising or lowering interest rates to try and keep it within what they call their target band of 2 to 3%. And it basically has worked. There's been a little bit of a few times where it's gone a bit higher and a bit lower and certainly a bit lower in the last six years. But basically, it seemed like inflation was done. We didn't have to worry about it. No one cared about it. Uh, It really was a bit of a non-issue. But you're right, it's back now, massively so around the world, less so here in Australia. And the entire reason is the pandemic. I mean, it it really is. It's, It's changed our economies greatly. And it's created a real problem for governments and for central banks because it's not like the inflation we had in the the 70s or even in the 80s where you had this real boom bust where you'd suddenly everyone feels like they've got a lot of money, they're spending madly, everyone's getting good pay rises and everything like that and there seems to be what what we'd say that the economy is overheating. There's actually too much activity and 
that starts raising prices. That's not the case here. You know, there is a lot of uh, stimulus certainly in the economy, but it's not like the economy's, you know, going great guns and, you know, certainly not in terms of wages. What's happened and anyone listening will, will, I'd say, have had experience of this, is that we've got massive supply issues, international and even domestic. It's hard to actually get things in stores. It's hard to buy things. And that's all sort of had a concertina effect that's caused prices to go up. I want to ask about wages in just yep. a moment and how all of this affects all of us getting a pay rise or not. But, but just... Quickly, I wanted to ask about houses because I am a millennial and I'm obsessed with the fact that I I desperately want to buy a house and I will almost certainly not be able to unless I sort of win the lottery or something. Like it's it's just not going to happen for me. It's not going to happen for my friends. And, you know, when I think about inflation, I always think about houses and how like the price of houses just seems to be getting higher and higher and higher and sort of floating off detached from reality, like, you know, the reality of how much people earn, how much people spend on other parts of um, that make up the CPI you referred to earlier. And mm-hmm. I wondered like, how <laughs> help, <laughs> like, how does that, how do we stop that or how how will this be stopped? Like surely we will get to a point where, uh, like at the moment, the the fact that the prices are increasing and increasing and increasing is making quite a lot of people really happy. But surely that number will get smaller and smaller, and it'll get to the point where, you know, when the majority of Australian citizens don't own a house, you know, will that be the moment the scales tip and? prices need to come down? Like, how does this end up? How does this end? Well, I mean, the, 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 oh God, poor housing. <laughs> um, poor housing? Boy, all, Housing's all, doing fine. Poor me. <laughs> <laughs> poor those that I, I should say housing, it's, it's always, whenever I write about housing, it, it is almost, uh, uh, in fact, my editors sort of have joked that it's kind of uh, my version of clickbait when I write about housing because there's two kind of groups. There's the the people like you, Sally, who almost hate read it because it's it's uh, always telling them that they can't afford a, a house and even less so than they could three months ago. And then there's the other types who are either those who have got a house and are quietly enjoying the fact their values are going up or they're actually people who have got sort of a conscience that they're wondering about how the hell are their kids ever going to afford one. So regardless of which side of the coin you're on, it's always a a massive topic of interest. And you're right, it's, look, I'm not going to lie, you're stuffed. The best advice I can give you is to go back and be born 15 years earlier, really. I mean, it's it's absurd and the reasons it's absurd is because the governments, successive governments have sought to make it absurd. Certainly started with John Howard um, in 1999 uh, when they changed negative gearing and or more importantly changed uh, how capital gains tax was uh, taxed and uh, that really set alight the negative gearing, uh, the benefits of negative gearing and really got investors into the market in a way that they never were. And we can even see in the response to the pandemic how the Morrison government has basically 
fired up the housing market again with their home builder um, policy. Whenever we go into recession, there's always a big issue with construction. Construction is a is a massive employer, directly but also indirectly. All those supply chains and all the the flow on multiplier effects from people building things. Back during the GFC, the the Rudd government decided, well, let's do a lot of construction, and we and we did all the building the education revolution. You know, all the the school halls and so forth. A very excellent public works approach to getting out of the uh, recession and it worked wonderfully. The Morrison government didn't do that. They put all the money towards all their stimulus towards construction in the private sector through the home builder to basically get people building houses. But what that also did was it essentially set fire to the housing market and saw has seen prices just go mad in a way that just has no link with reality, really. No link with how household incomes are going, definitely no link with wages. And it really is just a, you know, it, it is not a natural thing because it, it has occurred because of government policies of whether it be first home buyer grants or it be through things like home builder or or through the, the taxation system. Everything is geared towards benefiting people who have got a home and people who probably don't need too much help to afford a home, but basically making it, you know, almost uh, attractive. You know, a lot of these people who are getting first-time grants or who are taking advantage of the Home Builder Program, it wasn't a case of they, you know, they couldn't have afforded a home without it. Basically, was benefiting people who probably didn't need that benefit and, you know, it really is a case of so much of our, a bit like every a lot of other things in our in our economy. There's been this real sort of move to privatise this sense of the economy and and this real sense of making the the home the housing market almost the way we get out of a recession by just pumping it up ever more. Yeah, which, the problem with that, as- Greg, isn't it, and Sally, is that what it is going to do, it's it's long-term implications, uh, uh, a social dividend of really negative impact for generations to come because it's building in yeah. new class of citizens of the haves and have-nots, those who do inherit intergenerational wealth through home ownership, those who are locked out of it forever. So it's a, it's almost like a housing caste system which we're establishing in this country, which uh, oh, yeah. is hugely problematic. Absolutely. Can I just ask you about... Yeah. The rubber hitting the road now on an election. And we've already heard them talking about it, the Conservatives, uh, the Liberals and whatnot. We can't afford a pay rise. Even though inflation's going up, we can't afford a pay rise. And in a gaslighting classic, as inflation goes up, even the, the question or the demand for a pay rise to keep pace with inflation is said to be the cause of inflation. Workers <laughs> are the problem. How do we deal with this? How, what is the way to combat this narrative? Because it is going to come raining down hard on us as this yep. election campaign gets underway. I mean, the classic thing about about wages growth is it doesn't matter the reality. Um, generally, Liberal Party politicians and business groups will be saying that wages are, are going too, are rising too fast. We're losing competitiveness. Um, unions are out of control. And, um, you know, Senator Betts uh, was saying this back in 2010, 2011, if I recall correctly, you know, calling for it that there was a wages breakout. And since then, wages of growth has essentially halved. Uh, <laughs> what we 
the the solution is actually it's been given to us by the the head of the Reserve Bank and even the head of the Treasury just a couple of weeks ago when uh, Stephen Kennedy appeared before Senate Estimates. There's a very simple way of working out what people should be getting in terms of wages growth and also whether or not our wages increases are putting pressure on inflation. And it's essentially this. Um, you put inflation and add it with productivity growth and that equals the wages. So, for example, the Reserve Bank tries to have inflation running at about 2.5%. That's their kind of their target. And they'd like productivity to grow at 1% a year. That's an, a nice sort of healthy number that we're, we're getting 1% more productive every year. So you put that together and if wages are growing by 3.5%, then as Stephen Kennedy told the Senate Estimates Committee, they're not putting pressure on, on inf- inflation because all of the gains in our wages are coming from two things. One, just the natural increase in prices and from our gains from productivity. So we're essentially just rewarding workers for having been more productive. And where the problem occurs is, you know, in terms of wages sort of maybe causing inflation to keep going up, is when we are getting wages growth that is actually above um, productivity and inflation. So we're kind of, you know, getting a bit more than perhaps we deserve in terms of prices rising and productivity. But the reality is that's not occurring at all. We're nowhere near it. Like in the last three years, and it's always good to sort of do this in three-year sort of averages, not only because you think about, you know, enterprise bargaining agreements and stuff, but also these figures can bounce up and down. So three three averages is a good one. You know, the last three years, inflation's grown by around 1.8% on average. Um, productivity in the private sector is growing by about 1.2% on average. Put that together, 3%. Problem is our wages over that time have grown by 1.9% on average. Yeah, we're basically maybe 2% if you round up and close your eyes a bit and squint. So essentially we're, our wages over the past three years on average have grown 1% less than they should be. It's absurd at this point to be saying that wages are putting any pressure on on inflation, we're getting less of the economic pie than ever before. The GDP figures, which came out on Wednesday, um, showed that only 46% of GDP goes towards what's called compensation of employers, which is wages and social security benefits and things like that. That's the lowest ever recorded. You know, it always used to be up near 50%. Now it's down to 60, uh, 46%. If you look at uh, what's called the real unit labour cost, which is basically what does it cost to employ labour to make what we call one unit of output, a sort of a a generic one unit, it's down 3% on where it was prior to the pandemic. You know, basically labour costs 3% less in real terms than it did before the pandemic. You know, the businesses really have got no leg to stand on when you hear them talking about, oh, we've got to watch out for wages and our competitiveness and all this blah, blah. You know, we, we've had decades of labour being underpaid and underrewarded for productivity benefits. Everyone always talks about, oh, we need to improve productivity. And yes, that's that's great. We do need to pro- improve productivity. The reason why we want to improve productivity is so that we can improve people's standards of living by, by giving them better pay so they can get more money for doing what they're doing. 
whereas what's happening is it's basically it's going the way of the profits and businesses. So what do we do about all of this, Greg? How can we rein in inflation on housing and other things and get the pay rises we need? Like what are the levers that need to be pulled and can ordinary people influence those levers at all? Well, we do have an election coming up, so it might be worthwhile um, thinking about which political parties are more likely to favour the worker side of things when it comes to industrial relations. I'm actually one who's not too worried about inflation overall. I think the, the main thing we've seen in the past year or so is we've really shifted our spending towards durable goods because we couldn't go on holidays. We weren't able to go out and eat and everything. So there's been a massive, massive shift and that's just created supply blockages and I think they will sort of work their way through as, as things open up. Housing, it really is about putting pressure on political parties to make this an issue. I think there are certain things that need to be done and the most obvious is because it's going to certainly benefit uh, the lower income workers is, is massively increased social housing. You know, build some public housing. This used to be something certainly when I was growing up was a very common thing and I think Francis probably can remember as well back in the 70s. And, you know, I, grew up in one of those, I grew up in one of those houses, yeah. Greg. My parents yeah. still live in it. Yeah, and now it's it's you know such a rarity, and you can even look at this in the figures. It, it's not a case of oh we just don't see them anymore. It's no, they're not building them anymore. So build more houses, build more public housing, and it really is a case of and it's, it might be a lost cause given how the last election went with regards to negative gearing and things, but we need to wind back the the taxation advantages towards homeowners um, and it you know that's just long-term pressure in terms of wages it really is a case of I think we've got to get out of this trap of almost agreeing with the narrative that any wage growth above inflation is bad it's that's not the case we should be getting at a bare minimum wages growth keeping up inflation and then it's a case of right we've got some productivity benefits. We deserve to get rewarded for those, not, oh, we got to keep um, wages down, otherwise we'll be uncompetitive. I mean, it's it really is a case we need to, I think, rediscover, I think, a bit of our sort of mojo when it comes to bargaining and not be cowered by the business groups and I would say the Liberal Party and the National Party who would who claim that, you know, wages growth is out of control because the reality is they say that whatever the wages are, um, it's no, it's just what they say and it's time to kind of push back and, and say here's the reality. We've got the Reserve Bank governor saying this. We've got the head of the Treasury saying this. Let's be real and uh, let's reward workers fairly. I love, I love it when you talk <laughs> economics like that, Greg. I love it. <laughs> Give me the grogonomics. Now, Greg, I know you write for the uh, for the Guardian, but you've also got a new gig at the Australia Institute as well. So tell us a bit about that before we say goodbye. Yeah, I'm the um, policy director of uh, fiscal and labour market, I think. I always forget if it's the labour force or the labour market, at the Centre for Future Work in the Australia Institute. So I, I've just started at the start of February, really 
interesting work. I'm really pleased to be working with the Australian Institute and the Centre for Future Work. They do great, great stuff, um, really advocating for for equality for across all things, whether it be income or gender, a really good uh, organisation that, that pushes for workers' rights and for workers and employees and lower-income people to actually get their fair share and that and that's always been what I've been about in my writing as well and so it's a really nice merging of of my sort of uh, own sort of work and be able to put it in a bit more of a broader context in a real sort of policy wonky sort of way where I can really advocate for some stuff so I'm really looking forward to to working with them and and producing some good stuff. Thanks, Greg. Always great to chat and uh, we'll talk to you again soon on the job. No problems, Francis and Sally. Great to talk to you. Have a good one. Thanks, mate. This is On The Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rudd. Greg Jericho there from the Australia Institute, the Centre for Future Work and The Guardian talking to us about inflation, the myths, the lies and the reality of workers trying to get a pay rise uh, that they richly deserve because we haven't had one for over 10 years. So it's been great talking with you again today. Remind people about your current campaign for the Murdoch Royal Commission. Uh, where's it at and where should people focus their energy at the moment? Well, we've got a big task ahead of us. I mean, all of us, the collective we, but also the supporters of the campaign. As we head into the federal election, we know that during a federal election, you know, everyone goes a little bit batty, but during federal elections is when we can see some of the worst political bias and sort of misinformation and factual uh, obfuscation in news corporation papers. We'll all remember the campaigns run by news corporation against the so-called carbon tax, the mining tax uh, at the 2019 election against the death tax, which wasn't even a real policy, sadly. And so AFMRC members will be gearing up to roll out a new way that we can all collectively monitor the Murdoch media and build a case for this Royal Commission that I think we desperately need in order to uncover the extent of the the damage in the Australian media market and also put forward some solutions and like forget about what I think the Senate inquiry into media diversity also thinks that the nation needs an inquiry with the powers of a royal commission to look into the media market so listen to them if you don't want to listen to me so that's what we'll be up to in the coming months. And just quickly, the website people can visit? afmrc.org.au. Good on you, Sally. Follow Sally at Sally Rugg on the Twitters and other socials. I'm at St. Frankly. Have yourself a fantastic week and we'll catch you next week on The Job. See you, Sal. Bye. Bye.